It's killing the captain. Shoot, quick! I won't shoot Nancy. This is not Nancy. If she were Nancy, could she take this? Stop it! Stop it, Spock! Bridge to all decks. Brace yourself for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And every episode of Enterprise Incidents, we do a deep dive into Star Trek, the original series, episode by episode in production order. Now, if you've been following us so far, you know that we have covered the first five episodes that were filmed, including The Cage, our first episode. So this is. Technically, episode number six in production order, but it is an episode that is a landmark, and we'll get to why in just a moment. It is The Man Trap. Steve Morris, what are your thoughts on The Man Trap? Like when you go back to when you saw the episode for the first time, like the impact that it made on you when you were when you were so much younger than today. You know, um, so much younger. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this, and and the thing that occurred to me is that when I was a really a kid, they there wasn't like rankings of Star Trek. I just loved Star Trek. Do you know what I mean? I I mean I probably knew that some episodes were better than others, but whatever it was, it's like five o'clock. I was getting get home and turn on the TV to watch an episode of Star Trek, and so it was really funny watching it this time for our show and really thinking about the Man Trap in a different way. My my feeling is, is that this is a average to below average episode. And what's but what I found really interesting watching it this time is that it actually makes it super clear what makes Star Trek good because of the things that it misses, you know, and those are things that I really wasn't thinking about when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I was like, oh, it's a monster story. And. McCoy does an interesting performance and the crewman green is creepy. And like, that's, that was my impression. But now I have a lot more thoughts about it. Having watched it for enterprise incidents. I, I completely agree. You know, on one hand, like when I think back to when I was, when I was a little kid and I was, and I was really into star Trek and I was watching it every night at 7 PM on WPHL channel 17, Philadelphia. And I was really lucky being part of the syndication generation for a couple of reasons. First of all, the syndication generation is the generation that really made Star Trek popular and got Star Trek going for the rest of its lifetime that we are still at a peak of, of creative uh, output for, for Star Trek with all these new shows. But it was the syndication generation that made Paramount the home of Star Trek at the time. Everyone go, whoa, wait a minute. We Miss the boat, you know. We really had a, a a golden goose here with Star Trek. Everyone loves Star Trek, and we were appealing to the right audience. And you know, the the episodes that I saw on TV, they were they were film. It wasn't like videotape, or certainly wasn't high definition or anything like that. But because the film was faded, but I got to see the episodes uncut. I don't know why Philadelphia lucked out with this, but the episodes were not stripped. For syndication in Philadelphia. So, so when I moved around and I, I saw Star Trek on other other stations like WPIX in New York, you know, they cut out five to seven minutes of the episode for syndication. But I saw the whole thing, and I also saw them in production order. And as every time, so so the the entire time of your childhood, they never stripped out that extra time. 
not on that local station in Philadelphia. They never stripped it. And by the time I, I moved away, you know, Star Trek wasn't even on the UHF channels anymore. And, you know, VHS came out and and eventually the DVDs. But but I got very lucky. I didn't realize how lucky I was that that even though I was watching sort of a, a faded print, so to speak, I was watching the complete episodes. And I was it was wasn't something I realized until much, much later. But also because of the rotation, you know, you were stuck watching whatever episode was right. on next. And when it got to the man trap, like when we were done with the end of the third season, you know, watching like, you know, the cloud minders and then all our yesterdays yeah. and then turnabout and truner, you know, you know that they were going to go back to the beginning as we did <laughs> here on enterprise incidents. And when, when it got to the man trap, I remember thinking it, it was certainly wasn't one of my favorites. It wasn't an episode that I felt like a, a chore to get through right. so I could get to like the next episode, which is a classic, The Naked Time. And boy, I cannot wait to talk to you about <laughs> that one. But like you said, it was a, uh, a, a below average episode of Star Trek. But as we've gotten older and we discussed this, and as since Star Trek now means so much more to us, and since we've 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 uh, have a different perspective on certain episodes like episodes that we didn't really like that much growing up and now we really appreciate them strangely enough the man trap is an episode that does bear some very strange fruit when it comes to a different analysis a different perspective on it and watching this episode just yesterday again i was able to appreciate the the depth there is depth to this episode there is some the, there there's some provocative elements to this episode but at the same time Steve there are things I really don't like about it and we're certainly going to get into that and uh, I I have, just, a, I have a question for you actually just because you brought up something that I found interesting what's that you you mentioned knowing that okay we got to the end of season three and now we're going to cycle back back around to the man trap. At what age do you think you were when you knew that Star Trek was divided into seasons and what order those seasons went in? Oh, I, I picked that up pretty early because I, and I'll tell you why. As I got more into watching the episodes, so then I started collecting memorabilia, merchandise like the trading cards from Tops, the poster books that ran from 76 to 78, and especially the prize possession of my Star Trek collection, the rosebud of my Star Trek collection, <laughs> which is uh, the remember the photo novels? Did you have those? I didn't. I know I, I'd seen them, but I never had them. Uh, I, I those photo novels. I have cherished those since I was a little kid. They are the exact same mint condition I bought them wow. in. But I was also reading books like you held up uh, early on, the Star Trek Compendium, the making of Star Trek. And, you know, more recently, uh, Mark Cushman's three volume set, These Are the Voyages. So, which you're, but I which think, you're quoted in. Yes, I'm quoted in the third one about the third season. And I got to say, uh, the, 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 to answer your question, I, I knew early on that it was divided into seasons, especially because by the time you get to that third season, by the time they started showing, uh, episodes like Spectre, the Gun, and and uh, the uh, Enterprise Incident, and um, a lot of Troyes, and certainly when you got to episodes like Spock's Brain, and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, the Way to Eden, and this, uh, and the Children Shall Lead, 
you could tell that the quality of the show had changed. Jerry Finnerman, the amazing genius cinematographer, left about halfway through the third season. The production budget went down. So, you know, the Enterprise didn't look like a busy starship. And the I didn't like the the the, the uniforms, the polyester shirts. Just overall, the quality of the show was different. And if you look at the first season where they're still finding their way. And then you look at the second season where Star Trek really hit its stride with one masterpiece episode after another. And then you get to the third season. Even if you're not really looking for it, you could tell that there is a division, especially between season two and season three. But did, the question is, did you realize that early on? Well, that's, what's, that's why I find so interesting is that you and I are essentially exactly the same age. We started watching yeah. Star Trek at basically exactly the same time. We both were rushing home after school to, to watch it. And yet, these are, there are areas where our experience is totally different because I don't, I didn't buy the books. I didn't, I had a couple of Star Trek comic books. I maybe had a Captain Kirk toy, but not, I wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't my thing. And I don't think, and I, as much as today, I'm like a, you know, literally teach film and, and have studied film, I had no idea there were different seasons as a kid. It never occurred to me. It was just all Star Trek, and I just loved it all. And it probably wasn't until I got my copy of the Star Trek compendium around freshman year in college that I actually knew what, you know, like, I mean, I think I knew what the menagerie was and that this was a pilot and but I really didn't start studying Star Trek until I was much older, you know? Wow. Yeah, wow, wow, I, wow. I really didn't. And so it's, it's so funny to, like, I was just a fan as a kid. I just wanted to watch all things Star Trek, you know? You know, I, I, I've been asked a lot over the years, like, what's the best book ever written about Star Trek? And, and the, you know, there are a lot of very, very good books written about Star Trek. The Star Trek Compendium by Alan Asherman. And then there's Inside Star Trek by Herb Solo and Robert H. Justman came out in 1996. Great book. Uh, I, like we mentioned, Mark Cushman's massive, exhaustive three-volume set, These Are the Voyages, are just absolutely fantastic. I couldn't put those books down. But when I was a kid and I just – I wanted I wanted to own everything I could about Star Trek. And I loved it so much. I wanted to, to have a piece of it that I could call my own, and that's why I bought all these things. By the way – all of that stuff, the trading cards, the poster books, the photo novels are in the exact same mint condition I bought them in. I just have cherished that stuff so much. But the first book that I ever read about Star Trek really was The Making of Star Trek, written by Stephen Whitfield, a.k.a. Stephen Edward Poe, and Gene Roddenberry. And this book was written in 1968. Wow. After the second season of the show. So it was written while the show was in production. And I didn't realize it at the time, but the making of Star Trek was the first of its kind, uh, uh, a book about the making of a television series that just so happened to be Star Trek. And it's because of that sort of fly on the wall as it happened approach that the making of Star Trek is still the greatest Star Trek book of them all, even though there's no f stuff in there from the third season because there it hadn't right. aired yet. Uh, it is still just an essential read and a perspective on Star Trek that no other book has because all those other books were written many, many years after the fact. Cool. But we are on the man trap. 
it was the sixth episode to film, but this is the episode that aired on September 8th, 1966, which makes it the landmark it is because it is the first episode of Star Trek to be broadcast on NBC TV. All the judgment on Star Trek started with the man trap, and that's part of the problem. But the episode was written by George Clayton Johnson. It's written as directed by Mark Daniels, who Mark Daniels, along with Joseph Pevney, uh, Pevney rather, Joseph Pevney, um, are the two directors who directed the most episodes of Star Trek. The, film, the, the music score is by Alexander Courage, who also, of course, uh, recorded and composed the theme to Star Trek. So the episode was filmed between June 22nd and June 30th, 1966. It took a total of six full production days. And the cost of the episode was $185,401. (laughs) So the per episode budget for the first season of Star Trek was $193,500. So the man trap actually came in a little more than $8,000 under budget. So they had kind of a surplus. But the thing about the man trap, Steve, is that it was written by George Clayton Johnson, who is a uh, a legend in science fiction in print, on the small screen, and on the big screen. Now, he wrote a bunch of episodes of The Twilight Zone. And oh. that's certainly where I, you know, uh, sort of uh, revere George Clayton Johnson. He wrote the episodes, uh, you know, the ones that I really like a lot are The Four of Us Are Dying. And I think probably his best episode is from the second season of The Twilight Zone. It's called The Howling Man. Great, great book. But did you know that George Clayton Johnson also wrote the story for Frank Sinatra's Ocean's Eleven? No, I had no idea. So there is one degree of separation between Frank Sinatra and Captain James T. Kirk, which I think is really, really cool. And he also co-wrote the book for Logan's Run, which uh, that movie, you know, when it came out in 76, uh, is obviously a landmark in science fiction. You, so, you know what's a weird yeah. thing is that – and it seems like Gene Roddenberry really sought these people out and collected them – is that science fiction was a very disrespected genre at the time. And the fact that he reached out to the people that are doing that who did Twilight Zone episodes, who did some of the – you know, did, wrote some of the stories in the pulps and things like that shows his love for this genre, which I think is really cool. Well, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because, yes, Gene Roddenberry – absolutely sought writers in science fiction uh, in print you know in books to be writers on the series you know he wanted this to be a serious science fiction show he did not want this to be like lost in space or any of the other kitty science fiction shows that were around at the time and he felt that by getting getting one of these like revered authors to write one of the screenplays he felt like it would immediately give Star Trek the credibility that he wanted. And around the time that they had the go-ahead to advance Star Trek into a weekly format for, for series, he had to recruit these famed science fiction writers to write episodes of the show. So Gene Roddenberry and, and the producers like, you know, uh, like Robert H. Dustman, they had screenings on the Desilu lot. I think they had three separate screenings 
of the second pilot where no man has gone before. And they invited these writers like George Clayton Johnson, like uh, Richard Matheson, like uh, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, uh, uh, also uh, Theodore Sturgeon, who uh, you know wrote a mock time. So he would have these screenings so people could watch the pilot. And then, then they could go, oh, okay, I get it. And then they go off and they write their screenplay. So that was the good thing. The problem is that the first pilot, or that, that second pilot, was really the only version of Star Trek that existed with this current cast. So these writers would come back with their screenplays, and they might be really well written, but maybe the voice of Star Trek isn't quite there in the screenplay as written. And the only person who really knows the voice of Star Trek is Roddenberry. So Roddenberry would rewrite these writers. You know, we discussed this with The Enemy Within, that he rewrote Richard Matheson's screenplay. And in some ways, he made it better. But, you know, how do you rewrite a famed author like Richard Matheson? Well, and, so and I'll that, say, you know, you, we can say that Roddenberry is the only person that has the voice of Star Trek, but he's discovering it too, episode by episode. There's a true evolution from the cage to where no man has gone before, you know, that, that, that happens. So, you know, because this is, and this is one of the things about being a creator is that we perceive art that we see from the outside of like, oh, this was Roddenberry's vision. He just did it all. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. You discover <laughs> things step by step, piece by piece. It's an evolution. And particularly when it comes to a series like this, it's definitely an evolution. You know, in this case, George Clayton Johnson was was ultimately rewritten by Roddenberry. And we'll, when we get into like our, our breakdown of the episode, we'll, we'll discuss some of the ways in which Roddenberry ad, made changes to the episode. And, and we'll, we'll be up to the listener of Enterprise Incidents to decide whether or not those changes were for better or for worse. But the very first story outline for this, this episode, which was not yet entitled The Man Trap, was dated... April 7th, 1966, and the outline was actually written by Lee Irwin. So then George Clayton Johnson is hired to turn that outline into a script. He turns his first draft in on May 23rd, 1966. Now, at that time, the episode was titled Damsel with a Dulcimer. Now, a you weird might- title. Very weird title, and it was a good thing that it was changed. But the title, Damsel with a Dulcimer, came from a 1797 poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge called Kublai Khan, where where the writer mused that if only he could reproduce a woman's beauty in song, then the world would go for it. But it was such an obscure reference that no one would get it. So the title was changed to The Unreal McCoy and then ultimately The Man Trap. Now, I, what I love about Star Trek is when they use their episode titles and they pull them from Shakespeare, like The Conscience of the King and By Any Other Name and All Our Yesterdays. But Dancer with the Dulcimer would have been a, uh, a, a really obscure, obscure title. So I'm glad they changed yeah. it. References are cool. It's okay if not everyone knows that the conscience of a king comes from Shakespeare, but someone in your audience has to know it so they can tell their friend sitting on the couch, oh, that's from Shakespeare. (laughs) Whatever it is with the dulcimer, nobody would get that. 
And I can't, I can't wait to t- I've got a great story for you. When we get to our recording of Enterprise Incidents for The Conscience of the King, I have a really great story uh-huh. about how St- Star mm-hmm. Trek opened my mind and opened my eyes and, and ears to Shakespeare. I owe it all to Star Trek. But uh, so when this episode came out on September 8th, 1966, and I love kind of looking at the history of like what was going on in the world at that time, around the time or on the day that Star Trek had its broadcast premiere. Well, about three days earlier on September 5th, the very first Jerry Lewis MDA Labor Day telethon raised over $1 million for muscular dystrophy research. So how many times growing up, Steve, did you did you watch or know about the Jerry Lewis Labor Day telethon? Every year. Every year. Every was the year. Thing that we, there are only three networks, and we were all tuned into that. Absolutely. But this was the first year, uh-huh. just three days before Star Trek premiered. So then on September 7th, the U.S. Department of Defense issued the largest draft call yet for the Vietnam conflict. 49,200 men were to be inducted into the armed forces during the month of October. So then on September 8th, the day that Star Trek had its premiere, there was another TV series that ran for five seasons that also had its premiere. So Star Trek premiered on NBC TV. Over on ABC TV on that very same day, the TV series, the sitcom, That Girl, starring Marlo Thomas, had its premiere the same day as Star Trek. I never knew that I never until knew that I was either. doing research. So when I was in film school, uh, I did a bunch of sitcoms, and my instructor, my writing instructor for sitcoms, was Sam Denoff, who created That Girl. Oh, yeah, yeah. How about that? And, That's very cool. And his partner with Bill Persky, they started writing on The Dick Van Dyke Show. So that was my that was my teacher in film school. Who was an, he's amazing, by the way. So then, two days later, on September tenth, Muhammad Ali defended his world title in Frankfurt, Germany, against European champion Carl Mildenberger. So, you know that Star Trek is very who, who, much by a the way was of not, the 60s. Who, by the way, was not in Ali's league. That was not that was not <laughs> right, a close right, fight. <laughs> that was uh, that was uh, right. Uh, absolutely, that was that was not a close fight at all. But. You know, I, I I think, you know, when you're when we look at the man trap, what we have to remember is the bar, the bar that the man trap is held against is among so many masterpiece, so many great, so many timeless, so many classic episodes of Star Trek. And there were so many episodes that had been finished filming by the time of Star Trek's premiere on September 8th. But for for whatever reason, whether it was because the corporate maneuver had a lot of special effects work and it just was not ready in time, or maybe Charlie X just didn't really, you know, capture the spirit of Star Trek in a way, or the naked time, like it was such a like to have an episode like that air, air first when it's such a character driven, you know, really gets into the characters and their vulnerabilities. Should that really be the first? So here's an episode, The Man Trap, that does explore a strange new world. You know, it has a monster in it uh, to provide suspense and intensity. So they settled on The Man Trap 
it was almost like by process of elimination. No one looked at the man trap and said, yeah, that's the one. And of course, like where no man has gone before, I, I mean, regardless of the different costumes and the different look, that should have been the first episode oh. to air, but it's okay that it wasn't. Shall we get into the episode? Let's dive in to Planet M113 with the man trap. So um, we open up, we hear Spock is in command. We're beaming down. And and one of the things I'm going to do through this episode, part of it is because I teach filmmaking, is there some missteps that I want to just kind of point out. And one of the missteps is that as we're hearing the captain's log and he's saying, Our mission, routine medical examination of archaeologist Robert Crater and his wife, Nancy. Routine, but for the fact that Nancy Crater is that one woman in Dr. McCoy's past. And the way he says it is so ominous. And the music is so ominous. And that, I believe, is the first mistake. Because when you look at Kirk's behavior, when we get into the scene, he's sort of lighthearted and joking. And what they're doing is they're trying to tell the audience that something serious and scary is going on. But nothing serious or scary is going on. Do the scene as the scene is like you don't. And, and this is something that happens throughout the episode is they're not trusting us, the audience, to get it, which is pretty straightforward. Um, so we get down to the planet, by the way. It's so funny how I saw this as a kid looking at it in high definition. It's like they're on a set. There's a big reddish wall in the background. It is totally, totally obvious as a kid. I never noticed those things. I just didn't see them. But, you know, at the same time, you got to keep in mind that this was a groundbreaking show. Nothing like this had ever been done. So the way that this that the planet sets were done, if you remember in the cage and in where no man has gone before, you know, on Talos 4 and Delta Vega, you had that background. Yeah, those paintings. Yeah. Those paintings, those matte paintings with the sky, with the clouds. Now – they can't use that background for every episode or every planet is going to look to look the same. So it was Jerry Finnerman, the genius, masterful cinematographer. I cannot praise Jerry Finnerman, his work enough because no other show has had ever looked like Star Trek and no other show has looked like Star Trek since, not even the other Star Trek shows. And that is because of the way Jerry Finnerman lit the scenes and for the planet-bound episodes, like the man trap, lit the sky. So in an effort to give each planet a different look, and also in an effort to save a lot of money by not having to paint a sky for every new planet, it was his idea to have a big white background that he could go around the other side of the stage and use colored gels to light this white background with the color of the gel. And in this case, it was like a reddish orange tint. Yeah, kind of a rust sort of color. Yeah, well, almost looks like the atmosphere of the planet Mars, if you want to know the truth. So it was really easy for Jerry Finnerman to light the next planet with a green sky. Or, you know, you get to Metamorphosis right. in season two with a purple sky. So it really made the series look beautiful. But I still thought that, yeah, it looks like a set, but it really looks like a really cool set. And I think that some of the production shortcomings that we watch now, that when we watch the episodes now, I think that the 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 limitations actually lend Star Trek a great deal of its charm. 
And also you have these actors, you know, William Shatner, uh, DeForest Kelly, that they're, they're taking this very, very seriously. Now you brought up the music, how when they first beam down to M113, you hear this sort of ominous music by Alexander Courage. Now of the individual episodes that Alexander Courage scored, so that'll be the cage where no man has gone before, the, the man trap and uh, uh, the naked time. This is my least favorite. And it was actually Gene Roddenberry who hated the score that Alexander Courage did because he didn't like how it got into like creepy monster territory. Now, the score was recorded on August 19th, 1966, and it cost a lot of money back in the day. Uh, it cost about $9,000 for them to record the score. But to your point about the captain's log, you know, again, we're still in the early stages yeah. of Star Trek and they're still finding their way. And I think, you know, when we hear the captain's log for these early episodes, the captain's log is almost like it's exposition. Yeah. It isn't until much, much later, but we're, you know, we're still a few episodes away from the captain's log really capturing the captain's thoughts as it's happening. He's not telling us what we're about to experience. He's summing up what we've already seen and how and his thoughts on it. That's the key difference that you made. I, and it make it makes sense. And I want to cut Roddenberry some slack here because I think the sense was we're doing this show that's totally different. Nobody's ever done a show like this. Most of the audience of network television are not science fiction fans. We are concerned that they're going to get it. We're, we want to make sure to grab their interest right away. And so we're saying, no, no, scary stuff, ominous music, serious captain's log. Um, but that doesn't match up to the tone where Kirk is sort of ribbing Dr. McCoy about seeing his yeah. lost love in kind of a way that I thought he's being kind of a jerk. Shall we pick some flowers, Doctor? When a man visits an old girlfriend, she usually expects something like that. Is that how you get girls to like you? By bribing them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's kind, he's kind of picking on him. And, and look, here's the first episode of Star Trek to air. And it's, it's a, a lot of background into McCoy's character, yeah. into DeForest Kelly. And, you know, just sort of the loneliness, uh, uh, you know, at, at this stage of his life. I mean, we wouldn't get another really good McCoy love story until the third season with For the World is Hollow yeah. and I Have Touched the Sky. So so here we have the first episode of Star Trek to air. And it's it's a, it's a big story for McCoy. And then we get our first look at Nancy Crater. Lenny. McCoy sees her, and she has dark, dark hair. You have an age today. And then she turns to Jim, and now she has gray hair, and the music has a sting. And then when crewman Darnell, he sees someone completely different. He sees a very attractive blonde who looks nothing like Nancy Crater. Now, in the earlier versions, Steve, the writers, uh, particularly George Clayton Johnson, but but also the also the uh, producers like Robert H. Justman, uh, they were all like, "How do we, how do we determine which version of Nancy we are seeing? How do we determine which version of Nancy the the various characters are seeing? How do we do this so it won't get too confusing?" And I thought they did a great job. Like I thought I they did, did a very effective job in establishing right away that something is something is off with Nancy Crater because we have the three people in the room are seeing a different version of this person. And Darnell, 
kind of loses his uh, his mind uh, comparing her to some woman that he left behind on Wrigley's pleasure planet. Is the implication here that he's remembering essentially a prostitute? Is that? That's what I'm thinking. That's what I, I think, I, you too. Know what? You're, you're talking about an episode that was produced maybe two or three episodes after Mud's, Mud's Women. Women. Yeah. So I, I do think that the producers still had their minds in the gutter with that respect. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and he speaks inappropriately and gets sent outside. Maybe I'll step outside, too. What? And let Plum examine me all alone? Plum. Um, and then and then Nancy leaves and says, you know, she better get Bob, which is Professor Crater. And, I, and they film this. I agree. They film this really well because Bones is looking at her, young, dark hair, and she starts to cross. And as she crosses by Kirk, then she's the Nancy with the gray hair. And then when she walks outside, now she is back to being the blonde and does just ridiculous over the top flirtatious moves. And Darnell follows her. Can you blame the guy? He's been stuck on a starship for for God knows how long. <laughs> Absolutely don't blame him. Um, and then we go into our titles. And we come back, and again, this is the exact same thing we were talking about. the captain's log, and he says, We were totally unaware that each member of the landing party was seeing a different woman. And that is exactly where I go, that is unnecessary. You didn't trust that you did the storytelling really well, which both of us agree that they did. Yeah, ex- absolutely. That's the exposition that we're talking yeah. about. Um, and then in comes Professor Crater. And I think this guy, this actor does a really good job of playing this jerk. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, Alfred Ryder plays Professor Crater. And boy, what an entrance. You know, he walks in the room, a heroic captain, sent out here, you know, leave us alone. We don't want you here. Now, will you please go back where you came from and tell whoever issues your orders to leave me and my wife alone? Yeah, he did an amazing job of just, of making his his presence known and, and making his desire to, to send the starship away. And obviously he has very good reason why. And all he needs is some additional salt against the heat. It's so funny as a kid, I was like, Oh man, I guess you got to have a lot of salt if it's hot, which, which by the way, I looked it up. Uh, uh, doctors no longer recommend the consumption of salt pills in the heat. That is not really a good remedy. Although you do lose a lot of salt when you sweat. Um, and what's what's really good about his performance, I think, is that you can see that it's false, is that you can see that he's overplaying this arrogant, grumpy curmudgeon. You know, you can see a little bit behind his eyes. Like it or not, Professor, as commander of the starship, I'm required to show your gold braid to everyone. You love it, don't you? He's all yours, Plum. Dr. McCoy. Dr. McCoy. I hate Dr. McCoy. <laughs> um, and McCoy goes to examine him and suddenly... Crater's attitude changes because his attitude changes because he knows that McCoy was a, a man from Nancy's past. McCoy is commenting on how good she looks. I'm not joking, Jim. She hasn't aged today. There's not a gray hair in her head. Kirk goes, Look, Doc, she's a handsome woman, but hardly 25. Particularly the gray hair. Because he says she doesn't even have a she doesn't have a, any gray in her hair. And Kirk's, yeah, Kirk yeah, goes, he, She's got some gray. Yeah, she's got some great bones, but it's interesting what Crater says. Yes. He says, I'm sure when Nancy lets, when you see her again, what he was going to say was, I'm sure when the creature lets you see it again, you will see the same person. But he he stopped himself and that the entire demeanor of Crater is changed. 
and then you hear the scream. We rush outside. We see that there's a body on the ground. And McCoy, rather than rushing to the body, rushes to Nancy, who now does look, does have the gray in her hair. And of course, Kirk is going, look, you're my doctor. Come over and deal with this patient. Because one of the threads throughout this film is that McCoy's lovesickness is making him not do his duty, you know, that he is distracted. A couple of things to note. Now, since we've been going in production order, you know, we noted that Lee Kelso from Where No Man Has Gone Before is technically the first Enterprise mm. crew member to die uh, in, in production order. But because this was the first episode that aired, Crewman Darnell is actually the first person to die for people watching Star Trek for the first time. Now, McCoy says, I can't hear if he says dead Jim or he's dead Jim. Dead Jim. I don't hear a he's. I did. I yeah, didn't I, notice that too. But he says dead Jim, which I guess is close enough, uh, sure. you know, to his catchphrase uh, or one of his many catchphrases. Now, the red, the red marks on Darnell's face were were not present in the earlier versions of the story. That was something that Roddenberry added in. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a good effect uh, to show that that you know something unusual killed this person. I noticed he had a Borgia plant in his hand. I could say anything. He, he'd taken a bite from it. He, he fell. And McCoy is just staring at her, and she says, "You're looking at me like you don't believe me." No, 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 no. It's not that at all. It's something entirely different. Which is, of course, her hair. Clearly, something is up with Nancy's version of the story. Not even McCoy is quite buying it. And Crater is looking at Nancy like, like, what did you do? They're all looking at her with a different set of eyes. Kirk is like looking at her going like, I want answers. McCoy doesn't quite believe her, thinks something is wrong. And Crater's looking at her because he knows what happened. So here's what's interesting about this is that, so Crater says when Nancy lets, you know, which is a key line that somehow the mistake that she made in the first scene where she let each guy see her differently, she is now going to correct. And what, one of the interesting things about this show is trying to figure out, well, what's really going on with the creature? And I think this is one of the areas where they kind of fail because she clearly has the ability to read minds. She clearly has the ability to absorb a bunch of knowledge because she's going to become all these different crew members. And there's no way that this salt creature knew how to speak Swahili until he meets Uhura. And, and what I think is happening is that Crater is going, it knows that if he puts in his brain, you have to look like the same person to each of these people that she will somehow read it so that she will appear correctly and be able to get away with it. I think that's the only thing that explains how she changes. Then we cut back up to the Enterprise to a scene that you mentioned that you got to watch all these things without cuts. Watching this, it's like, I have seen this scene, but the scene sticks out to me as one that I don't think was in the versions that I watched as a kid with Uhura and oh, Spock. Oh, the exchange between Uhura and Spock. Now, again, because we're going in production order, we're seeing Uhura wear her red uniform right. for the first time. And I like the exchange between Uhura and Spock. You know, you know, this was the, these types of exchanges were were not something that that happened a lot. You know, Uhura kind of like letting her guard down and just trying to make small talk with Spock. Well, and not just small talk, because she's flirting with him. Why don't you tell me I'm an attractive young lady? 
Or ask me if I've ever been in love. And you know what? I remember when I saw the 2009 Star Trek movie directed by J.J. Abrams. So in that Kelvin timeline, Spock and Uhura are in a relationship. So when that movie came out in May of 2009 and, you know, some people were saying like Spock and Uhura and I was like, you know what? I buy this because of the flirting and the connection that they made on the very first aired episode of the series. And she brings up Vulcan's moon. Tell me how your planet Vulcan looks on a lazy evening when the moon is full. Vulcan has no moon, Miss Uhura. I love her line. I'm not surprised, Mr. Spock. Yeah, yeah, good comeback. What, what's funny is when the Kelvin Timeline uh, movie came out, I didn't have that thought because I don't think I watched the uncut version that much because it's not one of my favorite episodes. And I don't think this scene was in the version that I saw over and over again as a kid. But the next moment is pretty amazing because we get a call from the landing party that they're, that they're returning and there's one death. And all Spock says is acknowledge. And Uhura turns on him. I don't believe it. Explain. You explain. Which, first of all, that's a really strong, like, she, this is her superior officer. Right. And she is jumping right in, in an aggressive way, which I absolutely love. And I kind of go like, man, I wish there was more Uhura, you know, throughout the whole series. This person that we see right here. That means that somebody is dead and you just sit there. It could be Captain Kirk. He's the closest thing you have to a friend. Again, this was the first episode to air. And this this one scene, though seemingly harmless, is a scene that provides so much information that that's you know Spock is suppressing emotions that Uhura has maybe a, a an attraction to him that Vulcan has no moon that Kirk is the closest that Spock has to a friend and this is why it's unfortunate that it was the first episode aired because had you seen where no man has gone before enemy within or Corbomite you would have seen the relationship between Spock and Kirk you would have known from the very first chess scene in Where No Man Has Gone Before uh, the fact that he doesn't, one of your Earth emotions. And now, so now the first thing we're hearing that Spock and Kirk are friends is when we've never seen the two of them together, you know, and that it makes this weaker. But I also think it really makes something very clear in Spock's next line where he says, Lieutenant, my demonstration of concern will not change what has happened. The transporter room is very well manned and they will call me if they need my assistance. What's so great about Nimoy's performance in this moment is it's not that, as Uhura says, he has no emotions about this. It is that he is controlling them and that you can see that he is upset. It's very clear in Nimoy's performance that he is he is upset and he's controlling it. Mm, absolutely. Great, great point. So we're now in the sick bay. Kirk and McCoy are trying to figure out what killed crewman Darnell. There were bits of the plant in his mouth. Jim, don't tell me my business. He could not have swallowed any. My instruments would have picked up any trace of it whatsoever. Then what kills a healthy man? I'll tell you something else. This man shouldn't be dead. I can't find anything wrong with him. According to all the tests, he should get up and just walk away from here. And then, like on a dime, McCoy starts reminiscing and getting affectionate about his his lost love, Nancy Crater. How your lost love affects your vision, doctor, doesn't interest me. I've lost a man. I want to know what killed him. Yes, sir. It's a great way to end the first act. I think it's a great scene. And I think that moment is great. 
And again, I'm going to say the same thing. It's why it's unfortunate that this is the first episode that aired because had you seen Corbamite, had you seen Enemy Within, where the, the relationship with McCoy is established, particularly in Corbamite, where he is the most aggressive to criticize Kirk, the person who feels least controlled by rank and by, by military tradition. And so had you, if you had seen those first, and then Kirk snaps at him, and McCoy responds in the military way, yes, yes sir, sir, it would have had so much more impact. But because we, right. we, we never met McCoy, we, the only McCoy we know is this lovesick McCoy, who's very different. And so we don't, so these things don't have impact because this is the first time they are playing. Okay, we come back for a commercial, and this I totally know was not in the version that I saw. There's some message about a dude that needs supplies this urgently. Chili peppers, right? <laughs> this weird chili pepper speech, which I'm not going to say it's racist exactly, but it's very strange. I tell Jose he'll get us chili peppers when we get there. Tell him they're prime Mexican reds. I handpicked them myself, but he won't die if he goes a few more days without them. That is weird. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird episode. <laughs> yeah, so we're back at right? sickbay, and the first thing we hear is Spock saying, fascinating. And McCoy goes, it's so improbable, I almost didn't check it, which is that there is no salt in his body. He would die almost instantly. Oh, there isn't a mark on his body. Except the red rings on his face. You call that skin modeling? I thought it was, sir. Another error on my part. It's also at this moment how, for the second time, in, in, the, in production order, we see Kirk apologize to McCoy. I'm not counting them bones. <laughs> so, so I want to focus on how the wording of this, because this, I mean, there are other things in this episode I'll criticize. This is really good writing, because in the previous scene, Kirk shut him down and McCoy responded with, yes, sir. And now as he's apologizing, Kirk asks, well, you said this was skin modeling. And McCoy says, I thought it was, sir. And then Kirk smiles and he says, I'm not counting them bones. So what he did is McCoy is saying, I'm going to continue to say yes, sir, as not as long as I'm messing up. And in the forgiveness, Kirk, who's been calling him doctor and Dr. McCoy, now calls him by his nickname and says bones, which shows, no, no, we're cool. Like, I think that it's a subtle piece of writing, but it's a really good piece of writing. Um, Absolutely. One, one more thing I have to add, because, of course, I have to look things up, is I went, well, how much salt actually is in the human body? And so it ends up we have a whole bunch of different salts in the body. The, the biggest one being, of course, sodium chloride, regular table salt. And that represents 0.4% of a human's body weight, which so if you took a person that's a 180 pound man, that would be about 0.7 pounds or 11 ounces of salt. That is how much wow. Nancy... That's a lot. It's way more than I thought it would be. So almost a pound of salt is what Nancy sucked out of Crewman Green or Crewman Darnell at this point. Well, that's uh, very, very interesting that there's that much salt. No wonder no wonder these people die when they get the salt uh, uh, sucked out of them. So they go back down to M113 and they bring along these two crewmen you, you, you don't know. So you know that they're already doomed. Uh, especially if you know Star Trek. So it's Crewman Green and Crewman Sturgeon, and they confront Crater. Captain, you can't just beam down here and bully us and interfere with our work. Mrs. Crater, I won't ask again. Possibly the other diggings. We don't keep military laws. Greenfinder, 
Yes, sir. One thing that's interesting is they confront him about the salt thing because both Crater and Nancy asked about salt. Now we got a dead crewman whose salt has been sucked out. So he goes, what's the deal with salt thing? And Crater goes, look, it's hot. We showed up with 25 pounds of salt tablets, and this is how much is left. And we see a tiny bit left. Again, because I like math, I went, well, if they had 25 pounds of salt that lasted for five years, that's five pounds of salt per year. She just sucked 0.7 pounds out of crewman in one day as she's not done. So it's, it's a, I don't know where she's getting all her salt from, but that's a, an awful lot. So Crater runs out because he wants to get to her first. He wants to get to Nancy before Kirk and McCoy do. He comes across the dead body of Sturgeon. And he's like, Nancy's screaming out for Nancy. And then he goes, salt, I have salt. And then you see Nancy standing over the body of Green. So just like that, the creature has killed two more Enterprise crew members. I always go like, how is Kirk not hearing him saying, Nancy, I've got salt? Because they're right there. That which would be kind of a key piece of information that would have been oh, kind I of never useful. Thought of that. Um, yeah. Uh, and he finds the first body, and then they're calling for Green, and the camera tilts up to Nancy, who dissolves into being Crewman Green. And this is the first time you see the creature transform and morph into another another person. So it's a dramatic effect. Which, to be clear. Because I was thinking about this. I think as a kid, I thought that the creature was a shapeshifter, but they're not. They're always this weird looking alien with suction cups, but they have the power of illusion, not unlike the Telosians. And because there's elements of uh, Vina with her character being the Adam and Eve with Crater becoming whatever women that he wants her to be. In the teaser, we saw one figure, one character, the creature. And each of the other characters in that scene saw a different person, a different version of this, of this, of this creature. After that, whenever anyone sees the creature, they're always seeing the version of the creature that it is, it has transformed into. Like while the crewman green facade is going on, everyone on the enterprise sees green. It's not like, it's not like they're seeing a different a different person until the creature transforms into a different person. Like when it turns into the the other uh, crewman who starts speaking Swahili to Uhura. But, but wait, wait, is the creature transforming or is it just maintaining an illusion? That's that's an unknown. See, I think it's just maintaining an illusion. Well, I think it's transforming because we are seeing it transform. That's true. You know what I mean? Well, this we are, is we are we are seeing the transformation. Well, this is and again, this is why this show doesn't quite succeed. Because as a kid, I always thought the creature was transforming, but now I'm looking at going, look, clearly in the first scene it's illusion because they're all seeing different stuff. And so what are we saying that this creature has the ability to change shape and the ability to project illusions? And the other thing is is the creature kills by putting its suction cups on people's faces and sucking the salt out of them, right? Well, if it's transformed into a human body and it's actually changed, well, then it doesn't have suction cups on its hands. So how is it killing people? So, it, and again, it's like this is these things never bothered me as a kid. As a kid, it was just an episode of Star Trek. And do all things in movies and television and particularly in science fiction have to make sense? No. Sometimes there's great, great stories where it really doesn't make sense. But 
one of the keys to good writing generally is to is the screenwriter has to listen to their characters and listen to the situation. And usually the things that you've created will create opportunities for great drama without violating their rules. And I think that's where this misses the boat. But Kirk is calling for Green. Green! And then he just kind of walks up, creepy performance. Sturgeon was dead when I found him. I was circling to find whatever it was. The fact that Kirk does not dress him down for not reporting finding a corpse on his communicator and not responding when he was just calling to him and not even noticing that this crew member is actually really weird is is weird. Yeah, I, I agree. And as far as Green's creepy performance, uh, Bruce Watson, the actor who plays him, did a really good job, a really good job mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of, of playing a character that is creepy, but also a character that we see is vulnerable and also powerful and deadly. Um, And Kirk says, we got to beam up back on board and do a search. And McCoy's like, no, I want to stay here. We got to find Nancy. We can't search this whole planet on foot. Jim, you could learn something from Mr. Spock, doctor. Stop thinking with your glands. Listen, Kirk is, you know, he, he lets down his, his garb with McCoy. He has a different relationship with McCoy than he does with Spock. But First and foremost, he's the captain of the Enterprise. He lost a, he lost now two more crewmen. Well, one, one. He doesn't know about, about Green yet. You know what I suspect, re- thinking about this just at this moment? Because you were talking about, you know, they brought all these writers in the scene where no man has gone before, but those people went away without necessarily having a whole vision of the show. Well, and what character is missing from where no man has gone before? There's no McCoy. Right. And I think when this was written they did not get McCoy's character, which is very clear in Corbomite and very clear in Enemy Within. In this, this lovesick, mooning, out-of-it guy, that's not the same guy. Like, there was a way to write McCoy that would maintain his irascible, humanist, funny character in this situation. Um, We're back on the Enterprise, and we're with uh, Crewman Green, and he spots Janice Rand, who for some reason is standing in the middle of a hallway holding some food, which she's eating off the plate, which is weird because she's about to deliver it. Not only does she eat off the plate, but she salts it because she has a space age salt shaker. All this behavior <laughs> yeah. seems somewhat weird. They did, by the way, have to go out. The prop man had to go out and look for cool science fiction-ish looking salt shakers, which is a weird job. And when you when you look at, at the... Uh... At the memos that went back and forth in production on Star Trek, you'd be surprised how much thought went into a 23rd century salt shaker. One good thing about this episode is that we really get a good tour of the lower decks of the Enterprise. We also get a, a good look at how busy it is because there's people running around and all over the place. But also at this point, this is where the score composed by Alexander Courage, takes a, a downturn. That that creepy, monstery type of music is exactly what Gene Roddenberry was referring to when he expressed his distaste for the score. And I agree. I do not like this part of Alexander Courage's score. Otherwise, I think he's brilliant. Oh, Green, uh, what went on down there? Rand is uh, salting Sulu's food, and she is getting annoyed because he is about to take the salt. Who do you think you are? 
and he starts following her and there's some clunky dialogue in this episode like mm-hmm. when she says why didn't you go chase an asteroid that's totally an example of someone going what would be a sci-fi insult <laughs> you know <laughs> that's what they came up with and then and then they we meet some creeps in the hallway who are you know flirting and you know saying how'd you like to have her as your own personal yeoman like Ugh. yeah you know, early in the first season, there was there were certainly some elements of Star Trek that were sexist, and this is definitely one of them. Uh, but now we follow Rand into Sulu's botany room, and this is another sort of like cringe-inducing moment of the episode when we meet Gertrude. Gertrude <laughs> is a plant that is alive, and all Ger- Gertrude is is a man's hand in a fuzzy pink glove. And it looks like a man's hand yeah. in a fuzzy pink glove. But Gertrude's purpose is to sense danger when Green walks in the room. And that is that is absolutely what happens. It, it is very much a triple reaction, you know. Uh, and it, this, what's weird about this episode, I think we might spend more time with supporting characters in this episode than almost any other episode in Star Trek. We spend a lot of time in the Uhura-Spock scene. And then a lot of time with Sulu and Rand just chatting, which I think is actually neat. And I think it shows that they're both good actors and I like their characters. And I also go, here's another reason why this shouldn't be the first episode to air, because we have much less Kirk time and much less Spock time, you know. Agreed. And, and so we're not seeing that incredibly dynamic character from where no man has gone before Corbinite. We're not seeing that guy. You know, the only other episode I can think of that it, that really shows that dynamic is like the Doomsday Machine, where you just you see everyone except for Uhura because she wasn't in that episode. But everyone has a chance to shine in that episode. Well, and actually, the other one is our next episode, Naked Time. Naked, oh, Naked Time, Time has is a, great. Yeah, has a bunch of ensemble stuff. But this one, I, I agree. It's great. It uh, While I don't care for the fuzzy pink glove... I do like the dynamic between Rand and Sulu and the way they're joking around and and but then then when the Gertrude starts freaking out and Green sort of runs out of the room in panic and they're commenting on Green again another clunky line of dialogue do you suppose he's space happy or something you know yes yeah, clunky what's the moment in Armageddon where Steve Buscemi goes nuts and they say you lost your mind he's got space dementia uh, and Green comes out, and and one thing we should say is that one idea they made, one choice, is that in order to identify the creature, they gave the creature a, a mannerism, and that is knuckle to the mouth. This And this, we see Nancy do it, we see Green do it, and when Green comes out and sees Uhura, he transforms into an African-American crewman. So there's a good argument that the character... Even even in its uh, this illusion form is not African American, could actually be an African, African character. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Good point. I'm guessing, of course, but you do look a little lonely. I see. So naturally, when I'm lonely, I think of you. Michelle Nichols is great. I love her playing this of here's a strange man flirting with me, and I might shut him down until this character starts speaking to her. In her native Swahili language. Swahili. Now, this is interesting. What this crewman says to her in the translation is, how are you, friend? I think of you, beautiful lady. You should never know 
loneliness. And that line, you should never know loneliness, is lost in the translation because a lot of people watching the episode did not speak Swahili. Yeah, I didn't when I was eight years old speak Swahili. Yeah, and I still at 52 don't speak Swahili. One thing about the Swahili is when I was a kid, we didn't have these phrases like inclusion. We didn't talk about diversity. But I knew just this Swahili moment was special. And and the reason I knew it was special was because there was nothing joking or disrespectful. It was treating this language, this African language, as important, as an important connection between these characters, and that therefore it was treating that culture as important. And I intuitively, even as a kid, knew that. And this is where, like, that is the Star Trek, part of the Star Trek message, absolutely. She warms up to him. And then quickly senses the danger of the situation. And she's also under under the creature's spell. And it's only because Rand happens to walk by and interrupt them that she snaps out of it and reports to the bridge after she is paged by Captain Kirk. Lieutenant Uhura, on my way, sir. And we're in McCoy's quarters and he's wearing a black t-shirt and can't fall asleep. By taking one of those red pills you gave me last week. You'll sleep. You'll, You'll sleep. sleep. And strangely enough, the red pills that Jim is mentioning, <laughs> McCoy has right in front of him at that moment and tosses them up so that we can see that he has them. Okay. <laughs> well, we're back on the bridge and uh, they're looking for Nancy. They're scanning for her. And I thought this was interesting because, you know, we see Captain Kirk eating on the bridge. You know, he's eating his uh, his lunch or dinner mm-hmm. on duty. And that's I don't think we've ever actually seen. I mean, you know, maybe we've seen them have coffee like we did in uh, Wink of an Eye. Mm. But this is the first time we're actually seeing a crew member eat on the bridge. Mm. I thought that was a, a, a good touch. You know, like they got to eat sometime. Yeah. Maybe he's just, you know, working through lunch, so to speak. But by, by the way, but I should then, say, I meant to say earlier, but the like space celery that's on <laughs> Rand's tray is really it's clearly like a celery stock that they put some weird red stuff on the top of to make it look, you know, spacey. We're back in in the corridors of the Enterprise and we see the creature turn back into Nancy. Nancy. And McCoy embraces the creature, not knowing that it's a creature. Well, in, in his mind, it's like, oh my God, they found you. You're safe. Thank God. And she is happy to found it. And she's extremely affectionate. The others, they, I, I don't relate to them as much as with you. You, you have such strong memories of To me, this is a line that gives us insight into what the creature actually is. It seems as if the stronger the memories, the more convincing the identity the creature can take on. Because the creature latches onto those memories, yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. with Crater, who obviously has very strong memories of Nancy, because that was his wife for many years, that there's something to latch onto. With Green, or with the crewman that Uhura encounters, there's less. So Green barely talks because he's walking around with people that don't have impressions of him. Whereas the creature is, because one of the big questions is, why is Nancy not killing McCoy? Because this creature has killed a whole bunch of people and is still hungry, desperately hungry for salt, we know. And so it must be that the fact that McCoy has such strong memories is what's keeping him alive at this moment. Nancy. Um, My husband? 
I like your feelings better. Much stronger. That's pretty weird. But this is really the creature looking for an embrace that the creature is no longer getting from, from Crater. You know, the creature's fighting for survival. And the creature knows that it will be safe in McCoy's hands because McCoy is just so love-struck by the prospect of Nancy, even though he, he knows not enough not to cross the line with it, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. But we're back on the lower decks of the Enterprise, and uh, an engineering crewman is now dead. Whatever was killing the Enterprise crew members on the planet is now aboard the Enterprise. End of Act 2. When we come back, we're with McCoy and Nancy, and McCoy has taken one of the red pills, and Nancy's kind of comforting him, helping him get to sleep. And we hear a medical alert because of the crew member we just found. And McCoy tries to get up, and she makes him, no, no, go back to sleep. Nancy will take care of everything. She walks to the door. And it's funny, after she touches her, his face, she licks her fingers because mm-hmm. there's a lift the of the salt. Walks the salt on his face. Walks to the door. Where the camera goes on McCoy asleep on the bed, it pans off of McCoy and arrives at McCoy standing at the door because the creature has transformed. And just so you know, there's a section in this pan where it pans in front of a gray background, and that's where the cut is. So that's where the cut is. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, <laughs> you know, so if you have a, a totally neutral background, you can stop the pan stop the camera and then start it up again and then edit them together. So it looks as long as you lock down properly. Um, and this is, I think that's, I think that's a really dramatic moment. Oh my God. The creature has become McCoy. Yeah. It's a really well-directed scene and it's definitely creepy. Even without the creepy music, it is creepy. We head down the, to the planet. It's Kirk and Spock. Crater's got a old style phaser from back in the cage. Go away. We don't want you here. We? Where's your wife, Professor? We're concerned about her. And they're trying to talk to him when they get a message from the Enterprise saying, we've got another casualty, same symptoms. And that is when Spock finds Crewman Green's body. You have an intruder aboard. Could be masquerading as Crewman Green. General Quarters, Security Condition 3. GQ, Security 3, sir. And I love he calls up to Sulu, who's apparently in command, which again, I love that this Asian American character is so trusted and is such a you know great officer that he's in command and we don't put anything on it. We don't, it's not a big deal. It's just that, of course. By the 23rd century, nationality makes no difference. Yeah. You're doing your job because you're qualified to do it. And they decide they have to take Crater alive and Crater fires at them and destroys some of the ruins that are in the area. <laughs> Which is, by the way, this is a great scene. Like, that was a really effective moment when they closed their communicators to get him. And then, just like that, Crater fires on them, destroying part of the ruins. And this is a, a dramatic moment. They have, to, they have to figure out a way to get him. And they become very calculating in the way that they're kind of going around. And Kirk is on one side, Spock is on the other. And Kirk calls out for Crater. And then Kirk shoots him with his face are on stun. And there's this really interesting sort of ping sound effect. The speed of the camera speeds up as Crater is sort of knocked out by the phaser on stun. By the way, I love the way Crater reacts to the stun and the way they talk about it. Ooh, I feel strange. Just stunned. You'll be able to think in a minute. This next exchange between Kirk and Spock and Crater 
is really the part of the episode where the depth of this episode is often overlooked. But here it is. What's the last of her kind? Where Crater is talking about the buffalo. Once there were millions of them, prairies black with them, one herd covered three whole states. When they moved like thunder, and now they're gone. Is that what you mean? This is where the episode has more depth because now it's not just about killing this thing that's killing the crew members of the Enterprise. You're talking about a stake here. You're killing the last of its kind. And like, you know, when you get to Devil in the Dark, Spock makes the comment that if you kill the last of its kind, it would be crime against science. So the, the stakes are, are now quite high. Where's your wife? Where is she now? Dead. Buried up on the hill. It killed her. When? A year was it too? Like, even he doesn't know. The line between Nancy and the creature is blurred to such an extent because of the creature's effectiveness at conveying the image of Nancy, of keeping Crater from being truly alone and lonely. Crater has a line in when we first meet him that says, when he realizes that McCoy is the lost love, and he goes, It gives me great pleasure to know that she's gotten to see an old friend and has a chance for some company. It was different for me. I enjoy solitude. But for a woman, you understand, of course. What I think this scene tells us is that that is an exact lie, because it is Crater who is, in fact, lonely. Because And it is his loneliness that makes him accept the creature on some level. And then this is the other thing that we can't know, is yes, the creature has abilities to read memories and become someone out of your memories, but it also has hypnotic abilities. And so it's possible to me that Crater, part of why he doesn't remember whether it was a year or two, is he's been in a daze. It's possible that he's not completely 100% there. First of all, the, the isolation, whether he's with Nancy or with the creature or whatever, the isolation of being so far from, from other human contact, that, that, that does have to mess with you. I mean, just look at all the people who've been in quarantine for the last year Absolutely. who are losing their minds because they are lonely and been, they've had no human contact. Now, the interesting thing is that in the earlier versions of the story, it was Scotty who joined mm-hmm. Kirk on the planet to Hmm. go after Crater. But the producers, Justman and Roddenberry, felt that having Scotty join Kirk for for this part of the episode, there's not enough Spock in the episode. So they, they made it Kirk and Spock. But also, it wasn't until later versions of the screenplay that the whole concept of this creature being the last of its kind was introduced. So I think that is a great evolution of the screenplay to get to a point where they introduce the whole concept of this creature being the last of its kind. Well, I think it is, too. And I think this is it is both the most interesting sort of philosophical idea expressed in the show. And it is also why this show does not work, because it is because we have. Over and over and over again in Star Trek, including Devil in the Dark, including Metamorphosis, where we meet this other thing and don't understand it. And in the end, we choose not to kill. And that is not what happens in this episode. There is not. Well, well, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It, it isn't it isn't that they decide not to kill. It's that in Devil in the Dark and Metamorphosis, 
by the way, both of those episodes were written by the great Gene Kuhn, is that they discover something about the Horta and about the companion that makes them rethink their motive in killing it and realizing why these these two different entities are acting the way they are. Both of those episodes completely flip over because they now empathize with these entities that they had sought to kill because they were endangering crew members of the Enterprise. On one hand, they find out that the hoarder is a, a, a mother protecting its its kids, its eggs. And then they find out that the the companion of Metamorphosis is a female in love with the man. So what makes those episodes really, really work is that they realize that they're wrong. They just didn't know. They didn't understand. And it was the unknown that motivated their actions. And now that they know this information, they can see it more clearly. Now, in the case of the man trap, they discover that the thing is the last of its kind. But they don't have the reaction that they will in these later two episodes, Devil in the Dark and Metamorphosis, that they were like, well, we're wrong. We need to preserve it. They still have to kill it. They still are like, we got to stop this thing. And, uh, and you know, Kirk tells Crater, I'll have it or I'll have your head or both. Let's hold this topic because let's get in the next scene. Because the next thing that happens is we're in the briefing room. We hear that they set out salt as bait. McCoy is there, the creature version of McCoy. The creature version, yes. Who says, oh, well, why don't we just offer it salt without tricks? If there's no reason for it to attack us. The Spock's line is great. Your attitude is laudable, Doctor, but your reasoning is reckless. That's just good writing. And Crater and McCoy are now speaking together almost as a team because, of course, Crater knows that he's sitting next Crater to the creature. Crater knows, yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The creature is not dangerous when fed. No, it's simply trying to survive by using its natural ability to take other forms. And what they're arguing is that this is an intelligent creature and we don't have to hunt it down. So, and this is where I think this is exactly like Devil in the Dark or Metamorphosis. We've said this is intelligent. This is an intelligent creature who's trying to survive and Kirk doesn't go and Scott, Spock doesn't go. Well, can, and they're asking Crater, can you recognize this when you see it? And they don't say, let's talk to it. Can we communicate okay. it with it? Because in Devil in the Dark, my memory is, is that the reason they find out that the Horda is a mother is because Spock does the mind meld with it. That's a super, super dangerous, high risky thing they do before they know the reasoning of why the Horda is doing what they're doing because they're already thinking we don't, you know, we need to know more about this. And that is a decision that never comes up in this episode. Well, uh, to, to its defense, you know, this was in a very, very early of course, episode. Absolutely. And, and also to its defense, we were still a few episodes away from Gene Kuhn joining the series as a day-to-day producer and a contributing screenplay writer. You know, he was the one who wrote those two screenplays for Devil in the Dark and for Metamorphosis. And yes, I think it would have given it would have given the man trap a boost in quality had had they decided right then and there, like, oh, we were wrong in trying to kill this thing. We should try to save it and preserve it if it truly is the last of its kind. But they're 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 not, you know, the show is not developed enough to that point. But right. I agree with you. That's what should have happened. But I understand why it didn't, because they didn't have Absolutely. the the creative like mind on their team to sort of make that 
evolution in the story where where it flips over and you feel a whole lot more empathy. Now, you know, Crater is more is is the most vulnerable because you're you're seeing Crater's loneliness exposed in such a way. He's saying I loved Nancy very much. Few women like my Nancy. She lives in my dreams. She walks and sings in my dreams. And it becomes Nancy for you. Not because of tricks. It doesn't trick me. It needs love as much as it needs salt. I feel like you do feel empathy for the creature because, you know, here the creature as McCoy is sitting right across from Crater. And Crater is saying, yes, I know what this creature looks like on site. Are you going to help us find it? Sorry, I can't. So that's when Spock says, I recommend truth serum. And that is where the creature is observing all this because the creature is sitting there as McCoy. And the creature knows that if they put this truth serum into Crater, Crater will identify the creature and they'll kill it. So what does the creature then do? Well, I want to focus, I want to talk about, uh, because McCoy, creature McCoy says, well, I resist using it, but in this case, the professor will give us the truth. Again, this goes to what does the creature know? What knowledge does it have? It has to have enough knowledge of McCoy to give this answer, enough knowledge of Star Trek procedure, enough knowledge of what the truth serum is. It has to be smart enough. And at no point does Crater talk to this creature. The creature knows so much about, is able to absorb so much information then it should be, again, this is where I totally agree this is an early episode. And I totally, I'm not, I'm not bashing the show. But I also want to point out, like, this is what I mean by thinking more deeply about your characters and about the, the situation you've set up gives you the clues to more interesting choices. And I think there was a more interesting direction that they could have gone in thinking about, well, what does the creature know and what's Crater's relationship with the creature and what is Kirk's feelings about the buffalo and the last of its kind and what is the Star Trek mission and what is some creative way we can deal with it? And they really don't. They just like, this is a monster. We got to kill it, you know, and that's, which is, again, it's an early episode. I totally get it. But yes, you're, you're right. And there's one interesting moment too, is they go off McCoy and Crater go off to sick bay because we're going to do some truth serum. And Spock gets up and goes, I'll go with you. And there's a moment where Nimoy looks back at Kirk. And I think he is trying to give Kirk the significant, I don't trust McCoy look. And Kirk does not pick up on it. Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. But also in an earlier versions of, of the man trap, Crater lives. He is not killed. Mm. He is not killed. Because ultimately, he decides to stay behind on one hundred and planet M one hundred and thirteen to look for any last remnants if, if there are any more creatures. But in this one, in the final version, obviously, the the creature ultimately kills him. And uh, which do you prefer? That's a really great point. I think it would have. Ended the episode on a melancholy note to have Crater stay behind on the planet that he that he lives because it you know the the whole speech about the buffalo, the last of its kind, and you know that he is 
now going to spend the rest of his life looking for more of them, more buffalo. I still think it's effective and shocking that the creature gets to a point where it has no choice but to kill Crater, uh, the, the, the person who has basically taken care of it for all this time. But it, I think either way, it's still effective. But I think it would have ended the episode on a more melancholy note to have him uh, if he would have lived. I have never heard this before. I 100% think it's better if he lives. I think that would have been so much more dramatic. All the things that I'm talking about, about these conflicts and difficult things that I think we just kind of skate by, and and particularly like the last moments of the show, which we'll get to, I think fall flat. And if it was, and if Crater said, you killed the last buff, I'm going to dedicate my life to finding one more, that would have been a dramatic thing and would and be because this episode's not thought provoking i think in general i mean there's obviously a lot to talk about but it's not like enemy within or where no man has gone before or even corbamite and we're going to get to a whole bunch of others where you go oh wow there's a lot to think about here the decision of what do you risk to save the last buffalo and what do what are you willing to do well that's really interesting stuff that we really don't deal with and so i think that ending would have been much more powerful um, but what we do find is that the creature pretty much knocks Spock down and we see his green blood. And we also, I, ha- I love the line um, where Kirk is asking you, like, how are you still alive? Fortunately, my ancestors spawned in another ocean than yours did. My blood salts are quite different. A lot of information, a lot of information yep. in this episode about Spock. No moon on Vulcan and the the, the green blood and, and stuff like that. But we're, we're up to now the final showdown in McCoy's quarters because Nancy, yeah, the creature goes in there as Nancy, all panicked and tries to warm up to McCoy to protect the creature. That's when Kirk walks in with his phaser and with some salt. She's not Nancy, Bones. Are you insane? It killed four crewmen, now Crater. It, the creature, it kills. It needs salt to live. He holds up the salt, says, look at her face. And McCoy is still so fixated on Nancy, his longing for companionship and this lost love is so deep that even at this stage of the game, he still cannot see that this creature or that Nancy is is acting just in a very strange way, even at this moment. And his trusted captain is saying it's not Nancy and that he's still protecting her said, no, like he's holding on to this lost love because he's been so lonely for all these years. And the creature and Kirk get into a a tussle over the salt. And then the creature puts Kirk in a trance and proceeds to place its hands on his face and McCoy says no so I don't like this final scene there's part of it that I genuinely do like but but the the setup of Kirk holding five salt pills and the phaser and Nancy behind McCoy it all just seemed dumb to me and the the like Nancy literally in the last few hours has killed five dudes for their salt and 
now she's still so hungry that she's willing to blow her cover to get these five salt things. I just don't buy it. I'm okay with McCoy, who's, you know, been on Ambien or something, and he's been out for a while, being a bit groggy, and Nancy comes in and says, they're going to kill me. And he is like, whoa, whoa, hold on. I get that. But the the way it's staged is awkward. The way the action sequence happens is awkward. It's just not a great sequence. But I do love when Spock comes in. It's killing the captain. Shoot it, Doctor, quickly. No. And it's it's kind of comical in a way that, that Spock uses both hands clenched in a fist <laughs> to smack the smack Nancy across the face, side after side after side. And then that's when Nancy uh, just swats him away, swats him away to the point where it takes it knocks the wind out of him. And Spock is, is that really Nancy doctor? And McCoy says in a hushed tone, he goes, no, like he finally gets it. And I always thought it was interesting if Nancy had not turned into the creature, if she had stayed as Nancy, would McCoy have let Nancy kill the captain. But the creature changes into its true form, and we see the creature for the first time in its true form. Great costume, by the way. And the creature is uh, played by actress Sandra Gimple. Uh, that's who's wearing the uh, the outfit. Well, this moment of Nancy turning back into the creature, I think is stupid. And I think that was a huge mistake in terms of the filmmaking I think it lets McCoy off of the emotional hook because now it's like, oh, it is an alien. Is that him having to shoot the woman that he loves is way more dramatic than him having to shoot the alien. It just, yeah, the, he he should have shot her as yes. Nancy, not as the creature. You're right. It lets him off the hook and it lets you off the hook too. Yeah. Because if McCoy had, you know, with that hushed tone when Spock says, is that Nancy doctor? And McCoy says, No. You know, not dramatically, just hushed like that realization. My God, no, it's not her. And then it would have made him more heroic to shoot Nancy because he realizes it's not Nancy. And then after it dies and it can't use its power to change its appearance anymore, then we see it transform into this creature. But no, we see it transform while it is killing the captain. And then Kirk lets out an ear-piercing scream. And then McCoy shoots it. And then it changes to Nancy and says, Leonard, please. Lord, forgive me. Two things about this. The first is it's similar It's similar as a, in beat work as the end of Where No Man Has Gone Before with Kirk saying, forgive me, when he's about to kill Gary Mitchell. And then Gary getting his powers back is this moment. This is, you know, McCoy saying, Lord, forgive me as he kills the, the image of the woman he loves. The, I think it's interesting that Kirk doesn't scream when he's first getting hit by Nancy, but then later on he does. So I think there's something I always thought there was something about the hypnotism aspect of the creature is now not working post Spock interference. That's that was the way I interpreted that. The other thing that happens is as is Bones is going through his Lord forgive me dramatic moment, Shatner is waking up at the table and just kind of sitting there with nothing to do, looking sort of dazed. 
that is something where as a director and as an editor, it's like, if it ain't working, get it out of the frame. Like Shatner, what's happening with Shatner is distracting from this dramatic moment. It's one of the few moments in Star Trek where I think he's not, I don't think they gave him a clear direction. I don't think he knew what he was doing. And I think it's just unfortunate. Yeah, it's a it's a clunky final scene. It's a clunky uh, payoff. But what kind of brings it back around to make it an emotional payoff is when Kirk says, "I'm sorry, Bones." Yeah, and absolutely, I, I think I think that just like what we talked about, that scene would have had more of a dramatic impact had McCoy shot her while the creature was still looking like Nancy. And I think we end up, we're back on the bridge. We're going to have our tag. I think this, I think this is also a little bit weird. There's this pause. Kirk is thinking. Spock asks, asks if something's wrong and he smiles. I was thinking about the buffalo, Mr. Spock. Why are you smiling? You just killed the last buffalo. Like this shouldn't, like the whole tone. And then he looks over at McCoy, who also gives sort of a small smile. And I think that we're not dealing with what's happened. I don't think this is, there, there are all sorts of whimsical tags on Star Trek episodes. Some of them after really dramatic episodes and that's okay. But in this particular case, Kirk's smiling when he says, I was thinking about the Buffalo. Doesn't make sense. Well, I, I agree. And I think that if this episode had been produced later in the season and you had someone like, like Gene Kuhn yeah. in the room, you would have had him sort of give it a polish and fine tune things to to sort of make a more dramatic turn in the episode where they decide they want to actually protect the creature. Um, it's clunky. It's uh, it's not a fully realized Star Trek screenplay. We absolutely know that, but uh, I do think that the the glance that Kirk gives to McCoy. And that soft smile that McCoy gives back, and then Kirk looks at the uh, view screen. Warp one, Mister Spock. You know that brings us to the end of the Man Trap, and not a great episode, not terrible. Uh, it has its merits, it has its shortcomings. It is a very, very flawed episode. Not an episode that that represents Star Trek's mission statement. Not even close. But it was the first episode that aired. And the director, Mark Daniels, said about the man trap, right from the beginning, it was easy to see that the characters were extremely well-drawn. The main ones, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, were excellent. George Clayton Johnson, the writer of the episode, said, it's the very first one America saw. So almost all of the critical reaction to Star Trek came from that first show. And the basic attitude of America's reviewers was one of total bewilderment. Now, because this was the first episode, people reviewed it. And Daily Variety, in their review of The Man Trap, said, Star Trek obviously solicits an all-out suspension of disbelief, but it won't work it's better suited to the saturday morning kidvid block and then tv guide reviewed it by saying the sky's not the limit for this trek and in his one of his many autobiographies this one star trek memories which was published in 1993 william shatner said about the man trap 
a dreadful show, one of our worst ever. That's from William Shatner. So, Scott, I guess we've gone through this episode. I know it's neither of our favorites, but I bet you have some final thoughts on the man trap. Well, you know, it, it's it's still not one of my favorites, but it's it's not like the man trap is an episode that I never watch. Like when I think of episodes that I just, you know, going through my Blu-rays or 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 Netflix or wherever I'm catching the original series. There are certain episodes where I just never watch. And Man Trap is an episode I do revisit occasionally. And it's still an episode that I will revisit occasionally. After this discussion with you for Enterprise Incidents, I have a better appreciation for the Man Trap, especially with regards to to the depth and the the loneliness that we discussed about uh, Professor Crater and and about the longing on Dr. McCoy's side. But also, of course, there is the significance of this episode being the first episode that was ever aired. So uh, I, I still don't care for the monster aspect of it. I still, you know, after, especially after talking with you about about maybe what this episode would have been like later in the season when right. like someone like Gene Kuhn came aboard, like like how it would have probably uh, been improved by that. So I, I appreciate it more after this conversation, but overall it's, it's still, I would say, not even in my top 25 uh, episodes of the original series. Not bad, not great, uh, pretty, pretty average and... Uh, but of course, essential because of its significance. So I, I basically feel the same way. I like it better than Mud's Women. I don't like it. Other than that, it's 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 one I would watch again. It's not one I love. But I have to tell you something, which is that for those of you listening, don't know the fact that we were recording this episode and we ran out of time a week ago because I had a family thing, and so this is actually a week later from when we recorded. And I have had Scott a full epiphany. I just like a, it's so funny because I, you and I, we both watch these things over and over and over again. And yet watching it for enterprise incidents, I'm watching it in a different way and thinking about it in a serious way of like, well, what is this? And what does this really mean? And suddenly it occurred to me that there is a thread that connects all, every single episode we've done so far. And this is what it is. So in the cage, you have the problem being illusion. And the illusions are used to bring out Christopher Pike's desires, including some of his really dark desires, like the Orion slave girl. And what he must do to conquer that is use his mind, his logic, his intelligence in order to snap himself out. And of course, he also has to reject the offer of here is anything you want, any woman you want, any life you want to leave. He has to reject that for the real world. Second episode, not illusion. Now it's godlike powers that Gary Mitchell has the opportunity to have anything he wants. And what is the problem? Much like the Orion Slave Girls, it's the dark side of his personality. It's all the dark things that he has hidden. And that is what's going to turn him into a monster. And what does Kirk have to do? Does he overcome him with physical violence? No, that's not going to work. What he uses is logic. He uses his mind to convince Dr. Daner to fight against Gary Mitchell. Okay, so our next episode, Corbinite Maneuver, 
the character that has the biggest change is Bailey. Bailey is filled. Now we're not talking about desire. We're talking about fear. And what must he do in order for his character to change? He must use his mind to conquer his own fear so he can evolve and be the person that goes off in the serious. Our next episode is Mud's Women. Okay. Does desire and illusion take part in Mud's Women? Yes, it does. It's a lesser episode, but what is the choice that has to be made at the end of Mud's Women? Is that we have to have the reality, just like Christopher Pike chooses the reality. We have to have the reality, and that's better, even when the illusion is beautiful and amazing. And then, of course, we have the, the enemy, enemy within. within. Yes. And is this does this apply to the enemy within? Absolutely, because we now we've actually taken the dark side of Kirk and split him out. So and we see everything just like Christopher Pike in the Orion Slave Girl, where there's essentially a rape fantasy. Now we see Dark Kirk trying to rape Yeoman Rand. Mm -hmm. And what does the good Kirk have to do? What does Spock say? He says, you're going to be able to keep this together because of your logic, because the logic is in the good side, and that will triumph over the dark side and unify the person. And now we get to Man Trap, again, a lesser episode. But does desire and illusion have something to do with Man Trap? Absolutely a it does. <laughs> absolutely it does. Yeah. Is that desire and illusion is the weapon of the creature. And here's another thing, is that the scene that we talked about a lot was in the briefing room where Crater says, I can recognize the creature, and the creature is being Dr. McCoy. And we see that this creature has some kind of rudimentary intelligence, at least intelligence as far as like mimicry is concerned. And there's this moment where I said like, well, if the, why doesn't the creature just say, yo, no, it's me. And yeah, I did kill those people, but I just want salt. And if we could <laughs> yeah. just make a deal, you know, and why doesn't Crater say that? And the reason is, is because the creature doesn't have the intelligence to escape its own desire. And that's where we see when the creature is Nancy with McCoy and Kirk comes in and he holds out the salt. All the creature has to do is go, I'm not interested in that. Reject its own desire, just like Christopher Pike rejects his desire in the cage. But the creature is not intelligent enough to do that. The creature is not capable of taking charge of its own emotional thing. And because of that, like Gary Mitchell, it has to be destroyed. And here's one more point. What's our next episode? Oh boy, uh, you know, everything that you were going on. By the way, first of all, that is some epiphany. I got to tell you, maybe we should take a week off between, you know, <laughs> when we when we talk through the episode and really get into the nitty-gritty of it and uh, you know, give our final thoughts because if you're going to have epiphanies like this, you know, maybe we should make this a regular thing. And every the whole time you were going through this, Steve, I'm thinking, wait till you what till we get to the next episode that we're going to is uh, which is obviously the naked time, but I uh, that is an amazing epiphany and one that is absolutely relevant to the next episode of Enterprise Incidents when we take on the naked time, which I'm going to say now, and I know you agree with me, Steve, is that this episode is a truly epic and essential episode of Star Trek for so many reasons. I'm telling you, Scott, every single conversation we have, I learn new stuff. This show just seems like it's hit its stride. And if you want to stick with the show, the best thing to do is please subscribe. And if you subscribe and you can leave a review, whether it's on iTunes or Spotify, maybe it's a comment on YouTube. It really helps the show. And we love interacting with you. And the best place to interact with us is on Facebook at Enterprise Incidents 
Instagram, Enterprise Incidents, Twitter, Enter Incidents. Scott, how do people interact with Scott Mance? Well, you can definitely hit me up on Twitter at Movie Mance and also check out my Instagram, which is also at Movie Mance. Now, please, please do hit us up on Twitter because we want to know exactly what you think of this episode of Enterprise Incidents, of the series that we are doing so far. What do you think so far? Where would you like to see Enterprise Incidents go in terms of maybe things that you would like to hear that we have not yet discussed? So please let us know because we take this show very, very seriously. We want to do right by Star Trek. We want to do right by you. And we certainly want to do right by ourselves because, damn it, if we just don't love this show and it means so, so much to us. And Steve, where can people check you out and hit you up? Uh, SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I echo everything you said. What I really want to find out is there are people out there who are watching Star Trek, the original series for the very first time. How are you reacting to this incredible show with fresh eyes? I would love to hear that. And one of the things uh, that we've been doing on the cinephiles is that every year we do a deep dive, not just into a movie, but into a particular filmmaker. Our first one was an entire month devoted to Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. The next one was an entire month devoted to Alfred Hitchcock and Vertigo and Rear Window and Psycho. And next one was Akira Kurosawa, where we explored Yojimbo and Seven Samurai. And this year, the most epic of epic of all time, we did, I'm not kidding, two, over two months exploring Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather films. All of that is available on the cinephiles. But what I'm most excited about is what's coming next, because I have a feeling we got a pretty good episode on the way. Oh, not only do we have a good episode, Steve, we have a great episode. I would even go so far as to say that in the annals of the original Star Trek series, this next episode can be truly defined as epic. This episode is The Naked Time. There, there is so much to it that we're just going to have to do the deepest dive yet on Enterprise Incidents. And so until then... Keep those gloves on and keep going boldly. <laughs>